This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. So we are constantly connecting companies and nonprofit organizations in ways that build the capacity of nonprofit. Hi, welcome to EAM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week, we are talking to Danielle Holly from Common Impact. Common Impact has a disaster resilience program that is, that is philanthropic in, in nature. The idea here is to work with individuals, local government, and businesses to create a true disaster resilient community. And disaster resiliency is not just a buzzword for me. It's really something that as a community, as a profession, as individuals, we should really be focusing on. Because without a disaster resilient community, all the work that we're doing is realistically for not. What I mean by that is that as we go forth and do our preparedness and response and recovery plans and, and and reach out to the community to see, you know, how we can help them prepare themselves for a disaster. And then we don't really have an idea of what our community should look like after disaster or what it really means to become whole again, or whether or not we can utilize the current rules and regulations to make our community stronger after a disaster, then what are we doing realistically? It was really important for me to bring Danielle Hawley onto EM Weekly so we can have that discussion and so how we can really get into how businesses can, can help us become a disaster resilient community. Before we get into the interview, take some time and Check us out on, on Facebook. And we have a great time on the EM Weekly page on Facebook. Uh, we have a really good discussions over there as well. Uh, some things behind the scenes of EM Weekly that you don't get anywhere else. We do some Facebook lives and conversations there that are that are unique and and uh, you can only get there by being on the closed group on Facebook. So come on over, join us. Love to have you, and see you there. Now on to the interview. Danielle, welcome to Ian Weekly. Thanks, Todd. I'm so excited to be here. So I, I, I kind of found your, your organization through LinkedIn, and I, I got excited about it because disaster resiliency is, is uh, one of my passions, specifically uh, on the education side of, uh, of my job um, as, a, as a professor. And we're really working to educate emergency managers on, on making disaster resilient communities. How did you get involved with disaster resiliency? So the big question that the organization that I run, Common Impact, tries to answer is how can companies make the largest impact on society using 
their people using their talent and expertise. So looking beyond just dollars, looking beyond in-kind donations and thinking about their people as their greatest strategic and philanthropic asset. And that's where there was just such a clear, uh, you know, we started our research on this about two and a half years ago after the fall of 2017, where we just hit hurricane after hurricane and everyone's thinking about how can we better support disaster? There's such a clear need for companies to think more strategically about the way that they approach and support disaster response and resiliency in general and see a real use for their people there and what we would call skilled volunteering activities. So that's how we came to it. It's, it's a clear gap, clear need. And then as we explored it further, we talked to a bunch of folks like yourself who you know live this day in and day out and are experts in it and we just heard some really key themes that resonated with using resources a little bit more effectively from the private sector so a few years ago the iraq employer foundation saw a need in disaster resiliency and created the 100 disaster resilient cities initiative um but then when they had a change of leadership and obviously they, they just felt that, that wasn't the direction they wanted to go anymore. Uh, is there a gap now that the Rockefeller Foundation isn't pursuing um, disaster resiliency in the way they used to? I don't know if it's larger or different than before Rockefeller entered the scene and then decided to exit, which was their own organizational strategy. But what I do know is that the instances of disaster are increasing um, so rapidly that uh, companies are investing much more in themselves in terms of being prepared for it. Um, and that we still haven't quite figured out how to prepare and respond and recover from disaster in a way that feels super effective, you know, about 98%. I know you know, I'm preaching to the choir when I say this to you, but 98% of corporate philanthropy goes to the immediate relief. Right. And some of that is really effective. Um, and, and all of it is really needed. It's just a matter of directing the resources to the right needs. And those needs don't just happen in the immediate epicenter, either, you know, the town or region or the point in time when those disasters happen, there's a lot that can be done in advance and in recovery to make those, the organizations that are the first responders and or the organizations that just deliver services anyway, and struggle to during times of disaster, much more resilient and able to get back on their feet more quickly. So I, I think part of that is, is that uh, um, response is so sexy for lack of a better term. It's in yeah. the media, it's there, lights and sirens are going, the, the visuals are amazing on TV. Um, and I think once we start getting into uh, preparedness on the resilient side or even the recovery, um, it just doesn't seem to be as newsworthy. Um, and and I, I always tell my students, that's the, in the, in the recovery is where the real work is in emergency management, not, not the response. Um, that's right, that's right. How, how do we get people excited about something that's not in their face? If I had the answer to that question, 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know that we need to get people excited. I think we need to get to a place where the logic and the rationale and the pure, uh, the pure counterfactual, like what will happen if we don't do this? It, the case for that is getting stronger and stronger. And it's not sexy and it's not the thing that's going to make headlines. I mean, common impact is in this business that I actually just described it on Friday to someone who was meeting for the first time um, as the least sexy thing that you can think of, right? It's capacity building through companies to nonprofits that help other nonprofits. (laughs) Um, And it's one of the most powerful resources we've got, right? It's one of the most effective ones we've gotten similar Um, With disaster resiliency, right? I mean, we know that there are more, there are an increased frequency in disasters coming, both man-made and natural disasters. We 100% know that. We know that there is an exorbitant amount of money being spent and being wasted at point of relief. And so, I mean, it just makes sense. Um, We also know that the cities and the towns and the people that are affected by disaster are not necessarily only the ones that make headlines where the disaster is worse or where the photo op is best. Um, And all of that sense making doesn't fit within you know the twitter characters it doesn't fit within the flashy headlines and we've got to figure out how to get past that but i don't have the answer all of that is a long way to say i don't have the answer right no and and it's funny you say that because you know when we talk about the 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 disasters right and worldwide not just the united states right again we obviously we tend to be you know focused on where we live um but as so somebody who studies these things, we, I look at these things at a global scale. We even forget about some of the disasters that are out there that have happened. You know, some typhoons that, that struck into, uh, you know, India and Malaysia, um, you know, the Philippines. And then, you know, the, 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 the flood of 2016 that no one ever talks about because it was during the middle of a contentious political campaign. And uh, so no one, no one even covered that in the news uh, down in Louisiana. Uh, um, so even those, right. even those disasters are, are things that aren't covered. And we, we do talk about the ones, obviously the Superstorm Sandy, the, the Katrina's, the, the firestorms of, of, uh, California that happen every year and they're getting they're more intense every year that we, we get drier and drier in the climate. Um, you know, so again, how do we keep these things in front of people? And that's the, that's the hard question. Um, and then on the other side of it, how do we define resiliency? What's your definition of, of resiliency? What are you using? The amount of time it takes for an organization, an individual to regain their full capacity and from point of disaster to that point where they've regained it. I mean, there are so many different definitions, but specifically how we think about the corporate intervention and getting individuals to help organizations sustain and thrive after disaster. It's about that um, point A to point B. How much time does it take to get back? And what we're trying to do is reduce the amount of time, particularly for 
nonprofits, it's around delivery of services, right? So it's not just the first responders that we're trying to support here. In fact, it's, um, if anything, prioritizing the organizations that are not the first responders, the organizations that are the nonprofits that are delivering these critical services that when they're hit by natural or man-made disaster are unable to provide the basic services to constituents that they need to provide. And then the, there's an acute rise in need, right, when you have a point in disaster. So we're trying to get these organizations back on their feet quickly enough so that the folks that are suffering from disaster suffer as um, as little as possible and for as short a time as possible. One of the other things, speaking of you know what makes headlines and what doesn't, one of the other um, dimensions of disaster resiliency that came up in our research, and I'm sure this is something that you've seen too, is the populations that are impacted by disasters that don't make headlines are usually the low and moderate income, the disenfranchised populations that exponentially experience the consequences of disaster in a negative mm -hmm. way. And they're not usually the ones that get the most media attention or are able to sustain that media attention. It's just not, it's not as sexy and it's actually pretty, um, a pretty terrible lens to take to society, but it's really, it came up time and time again in conversation after conversation when we were um, researching this latest report that we've just released. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't have political capital, right? I mean, you know, it, it's one of those things that's on the, the whole policy wonk side of things. It's um, do they have the, the reach to go to make themselves known? And, and they don't. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, there's been study after study and we can really, I can get deep into the weeds on these things. Um, obviously talk a little bit of climate change here. Climate change is adversely affecting, um, the lower to middle income class of people and due to different things, various like losing jobs, uh, or employment opportunities. Um, if you take a look at the, um, farming community, the, the impact that it has specifically on, on the crops, you know, those things like this. And, and so once we take a look at that, that impact on them, on that slow-moving disaster, um, obviously when it comes to the larger disaster, if you will, um, their, their uh, voices sometimes aren't heard uh, because of that. And right. we have to do, as public servants, we have to do a better job of, and I, and I tell this to all my people right now, and I'll be the first one to stand to, to you know, no, I have to do a better job of reaching out to those that are going to be impacted the most because um, our job isn't just to make binders full of plans, human aspect of our job. And sometimes we forget about that. Let's talk a little bit about climate change. And I know that's one of the things that you guys have and I, my stake on it. And, and I've said this multiple times. Is I don't care if you believe it's man-made or not man-made. The issue is, is that we have a change in the climate that's evident and science-based right what can we do to do a better job of of telling our elected officials and i'm not even talking about like their national elected officials you know leave congress leave the senate leave the presidency out of it what can we do locally to to prepare better for the climate change so what's funny is that while there's so much political political rhetoric that is 
questioning whether climate change is or isn't real, every single institution, corporate, public, nonprofit is preparing themselves for the impact of climate change. So if you ask someone from a political perspective, if climate change is real, you might get different answers. But from a business work professional perspective, you can very clearly intuit a single answer. And so I think, you know, to some extent, this is the same issue that we were just talking about in terms of, is it sexy enough to make headlines? This is just that version, right? It's climate change version of it. Um, but the, there is real work happening behind the scenes and being able to surface that and share that and not even entertain the fact that, well, you know, is this or is this not real? But here are the ways in which we can invest more in alleviating some of the impacts of it that are sure to come because you know there the imf just released a study that there are going to be more of these disasters as a result of climate change and so companies are that one of the largest and most quickly if not the quickest growing department of companies is business continuity planning because they know there's going to be an impact in the mm-hmm. business community um you know is uh, these are kind of generic sweeping stereotypes, but are they, uh, you know, it, the, it's the private sector that has pushed back most politically on climate change, um, but they're not pushing back on it operationally. They're pushing back on it from a narrative perspective. Mm. Um, so I think it's really just about grounding people in facts and making sure that we're not ourselves as business, nonprofit, public sector leaders feeding the assumptions and the baseline narrative that's that's going into these headlines around the question. There was a report that was just put out uh, regarding the Paradise Fire, the campfire, if you will. Um, and in the study, they're talking about the fact that over the last 80 years, there's been a two and a half degree increase in the temperature in California, Northern California, uh, which increases or decreases the snowpack decreases the, the humidity in the air um, and which increases the dryness of our of our brush and our and our forests and when a fire mm-hmm. happens it increases that the size of the fire um, and now outside of the disaster response you also have to take a and again we talked about this a second ago you take a look at the crops that are being um, created that means our foods get more expensive our delivery of our foods get more expensive and again it impacts that middle to lower income class people more on all aspects of it. A gallon of milk, for instance, is, you know, more expensive due to the fact that it's cost more to produce it. Um, so even, so we have this economic impact on us, um, which is, we see it here in California pretty extensively at the pump and, and other places. Can we use these statistics and, and this evidence to um, force the hand of the local politician into making their city or their community uh, more resilient to these changes? You know, your guess is as good as mine. I think uh, this is, it's a similar, uh, we also work on um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is a place where there's just a clear business case for moving forward on these issues and the political narrative really struggles to address them. And I, I do think, I know we talked about, you know, this presidential election 
um, you know, taking that off the table, taking the lowercase p politics off the table. But I really actually do think that that is going to move us in one direction or the other because the framing of the narrative is so important and it's the facts are so clear. There's no, with climate change, with uh, topics like DEI, there's actually just, there's no case for not addressing these issues, not closing the gender gap. There's no, um, there's no case for not investing in resiliency, no business case that has been made or makes sense. And so I think, you know, it's really the folks that hold the narrative that's important. I do think what we're seeing in the corporate activism is really interesting and could be some of the difference that we may see over the next couple of years. So employees are now not, and this just happened with Facebook this week, um, employees and their dissent, um, companies that are not holding true to their values, their meaning the employee values, the purported values that the company is pushing out there. Um, there's a lot of power right now in this labor market, um, as good as it is at the moment, for employees to exact political pressure on corporate leadership. And so I think that we could see that expand. So the example of this last week was um, Facebook's political stance on um, taking money for misinformation, um, incorrect political ads, right? And um, Mark Zuckerberg has, has kind of put his foot in the ground around free speech and his employees just... Um, signed a very long letter that said, we don't agree with this. Free speech and paid speech are different. And this is not uh, what our company stands for. And I bet that that's going to have an influence, if not in the headlines, then in the operations of the company and the way that they think about it, or at least talk about it. And so I think we're going to see more and more of that with climate change as these disasters continue to happen. And companies, particularly energy companies, and companies that are directly tied, at least in perception, if not in reality, to climate change itself, I think we'll see employee pressures grow. So as an employee of a company or um, a large nonprofit, there are things that you can do just as an activist inside your company to uh, press your leadership to take a stand. So I mean, let's talk about a couple of companies, and I know you highlighted them um, on your website, like um, Tom's Shoes, for instance. I had the opportunity to uh, go and teach a class um, at their corporate headquarters. It's really kind of a fun place to, to be. Um, and the people are, are really um, awesome employees that are there. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Tom's, it's a shoe, shoe company that gives back to communities that, are, that need shoes, right? And uh, I actually asked, just to kind of let you guys know, I asked a question when I was there about, are we taking jobs away from local shoe cobblers, if you will? They specifically said no. They go in to look in, at places where uh, there isn't somebody already there doing it. They're not trying to take jobs away, um, and they're supporting communities that, that don't have uh, the ability to create their own uh, economic force for, for making shoes. So uh, that was a question that, that I thought was kind of uh, uh, answered well. So they, they're, they're a company that's been used to doing corporate um, activism, if you will, going out and giving one for every pair that's bought. Are there more companies kind of taking that model now or are, is, is Tom's still a, um, 
uh, a singular organization that's doing things like this. So what is different about Tom's? And I, I say different slowly because uh, they won't be different for long and there are more and more examples of companies that are doing this, is one, they were built, they're a business built on a social mission, as you were sharing. And so it's uh, it's always been a part of the dashboards that leadership looks at, giving back. And two, in particular, the their reaction to disaster, and in their case, it's man-made disaster, the mass shootings, have has been and gun violence in general um, has been completely mission driven meaning it doesn't make any good business sense for them to be investing in this issue to be lobbying congress in the way that they have uh, and to be one of the more outspoken companies right shoes have has nothing to do with gun violence and in the way that you can make a business case for other investments in natural disaster, right? And whether your employees are located in the regions that are being hit the most, whatever it is. Um, and so one of the things that we saw there was a CEO just doing what he thought was right and using his business and economic might to put real energy behind an issue. And that is fairly new. It's pretty inspiring. And there are some other companies that have been doing that. So um, Hamdi Ulakaya of Chobani um, has done that. Dick's Sporting Goods um, has decided to destroy all assault weapons. They decided a year or so ago to no longer sell them. But then with their added inventory, they're actually destroying them because their CEO thinks they should not be on the market. And so they say, if we don't want guns on the market, market and we've got all these guns, we're not going to put them back on the market, right? Um, and so that is something that's new and different. And while there is certainly business case to, and yeah, irrefutable business case to support uh, engagement in natural disasters, there's more and more, quote unquote, brands taking stands on man-made disasters as well. So... Uh, Again, and I'm, and I'm not trying to, to, to go back and forth on this, but the, the reason why I was talking about the local emergency manager and what can we do, because in lots of cases, we have access to our elected officials, direct access, right, um, to our city council members, to our mayors, you know, to, to the leadership of the city, compared to going to D.C. and, and being one of, of, of you know, a voice trying to get in front of there. We can actually have direct impact. Is there something that we can do as individual emergency managers um, to to push forward the narrative of the disaster resilient community compared to on the national stage? Saying no to resources that you don't need and of directing them to, and when I say them, you know, anyone who's trying to give you resources um, to the place where they can best support. And in the point of, at the point of disaster, when relief efforts are happening or starting to happen, often say no, <laughs> no thank you to the resources that are um, heading your way could be the smartest move for quick recovery and saying instead, 
you know, here's where you can help in the resiliency phase, but we're not ready to have that conversation yet. Because one of the things that was pretty horrifying, actually, from our research from the um, fall 2017 hurricanes was that, you know, there was just a, you know, companies were all wanted to support, uh, mostly well-intentioned, though some competitive, right? You know, you want to, as a company, or this is the um, approach that we've heard about, you you want to come out with a larger investment more quickly than your competitor because you want to, quote-unquote, beat them (laughs) in the disaster philanthropy space with respect to any particular disaster. What we saw is because of that dynamic, because companies both well-intentioned and not so were trying to give really actively to the hurricanes, they were giving in kind, they were giving whatever they had. And so it was a resource-based decision, not a need-based decision. And so what emergency managers can do is be really clear about what the needs are and what they're not. And we heard, oh, there's one just horrifying story that stands in my mind of a plane full of in-kind teddy bears actually blocking a runway uh, for and preventing fresh food and clean water getting to an emergency site during one of the hurricanes. And that's probably the worst <laughs> example that we'll see of the damage that um, the poor gifts or poor philanthropy can provide, but it's something that I think the emergency managers have real power over, right, in, in that time as a facilitator of that. Yeah, yeah we call uh, in-kind donations the second disaster, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> right, I shouldn't laugh, but it's true. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about what your organization is doing and how we can get involved. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that quick break. So um, thank you for listening to the sponsors. And without them, we really couldn't do what we're doing here today. And uh, please check them out and let them know that you heard them here. On- yeah, we So before we let them the break, I, w- I want to learn a little bit more about your organization and then how, as emergency managers, we can either go and get resources from you guys, might I say resources, like actually go online and read some of the stuff, or how can we get involved with helping you guys out? What exactly do you guys do on a daily basis that might be interesting to emergency managers? So we are constantly connecting companies and nonprofit organizations in ways that build the capacity of nonprofits. And so one of the things that we launched with our disaster resiliency program is socializing this philosophy with companies and getting them more interested in resiliency in general. So there are a ton of ways that emergency managers can engage here. One is by sharing with us in their regions what the needs are so that at the right moment we can activate companies to support them and at that right moment it's usually not the relief moment right it's it's now it's when there isn't any single 
large disaster happening? How can we start to uh, broaden that resource pool? Um, so letting us know what those needs are and helping provide feedback response to the resiliency report that perhaps we can share with your audience, Todd, um, and hear where we can add tools, resources. Um, you know, the the mistakes that have been made, where, you know, what what are their examples of the in-kind plane blocking the food and water coming into the airport so that we can continue to share this with companies? I really think that, you know, getting the private sector to think of this as a sexy issue, not something that is, you know, just interesting when the wildfires are burning or the hurricane is coming or the mass shooting just happened is the biggest piece that we would love emergency managers support on. How can we find you? www.commonimpact.org. And we've got a ton of social media accounts, but um, you can go to our website and, and read the report, find out how to engage, find out what our programming is, and find out how to contact us. And everybody, if you're driving down the road or your pencil's not sharp, we'll have that information down in the show notes, as always, um, with, with all the links to... Uh, come impact and, and uh, you know, what they're doing. Quick question. What are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? I am reading right now. I actually have it right in front of me. It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And that's by Jonathan Haidt. And it uh, talks a lot about what we just talked about, right? Like there's kind of objective reality, what we all think, and it's a lot closer together than what the political narrative would tell us. And just fascinating, really interesting, well-written book and uh, will motivate you for this kind of work. What are the three challenges that you think we're facing um, to create disaster-resilient communities? One is that it's, it's really hard to get past that it's not sexy headline. I've asked every single person that is expert in disaster resiliency and they don't have an answer. Um, I think the part is just the nature of the world that we live in. Two, there is a general and philanthropy. There is an excitement for giving to immediate needs versus long-term outcomes. And um, that is a challenge more broadly, but specifically when it comes to disaster resiliency, um, hard to get people to kind of broaden their lens. And then three, the political environment polarizes us far too much. We all know climate change is real. Um, I think at some, I, I, would, I would hope at some point, and we're just not willing to admit it <laughs> um, because the facts are there, it's really obvious. Uh, and we have let it, uh, the, this idea that it's a question bleed far too into the mainstream when folks across the political spectrum are preparing themselves and their organizations for the realities of it. If you could say one thing to all the emergency managers uh, in the world, what would it be? Thank you. And say no when it feels right to say no. I like that. That's, that's awesome. If an emergency manager uh, decided they wanted to, to kind of get involved with you guys, what's the steps to, to, to find you and, and to, to really get involved in what you guys are doing as far as research and, and whatnot? Check out our website. It's commonimpact.org, C-O-M-M-O-N-I-M-P-A-C-T.org. 
and you can click on our um, disaster resiliency programming and see the ways in which we're supporting both nonprofits and companies and um, happy to engage your feedback from emergency managers who are making all this real on the ground. Do you think that we should have a more robust study in, in disaster resiliency in the education system for emergency managers? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, there, there's so much emphasis on relief, and that is the moment where we need to act as effectively and efficiently as possible and where the risks feel highest. But the, uh, the lack of focus on resiliency really does bleed into the way that we operationalize it and the way that we think about it and the conversations that we have. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're super busy out there doing great work and uh, let's keep in touch. Same, it was a pleasure to be on and to talk a little bit about this work.